Now, who's been to a wedding where they've used 1 Corinthians 13 as one of the readings? I suspect most of us have. And at the end of the reading, we hear these words. These three remain, faith, hope and love. But the greatest of these is love. Okay? Heart of the Christian message. We talk a fair bit about faith and a bit about love, but sometimes hope gets left out of the equation or doesn't, doesn't feature so much. So my plan today is to see what, what we can learn a little bit about, about hope. So what is the Christian hope? Is it a hope for now? Is it a hope for the next part of our life? Or is it something eternal? Or is it all of those things? Nari is going to come and bring us our Bible reading, which is a story about a paralysed man who had hopes of Jesus. Today's Bible reading is from Mark chapter 2, verse 1 to 12. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the mat was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to, he said to, the, uh, he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so try and imagine the scene. Um, there's a, that's roughly what it, that's an artist's impression of what it would have looked like, the house. Not a big place, but there's a whole bunch of people gathered around because they've heard about this guy Jesus. Already, um, he has driven out an impure spirit from a guy. He's healed a whole bunch of people, including Simon Peter's mum, and he's healed a guy with leprosy. 
And after he healed the guy with leprosy, he then said, go to a priest so that the priest can basically certify that you've been healed. So Jesus was acknowledging the religious authorities. But a whole bunch of people had come because they'd obviously heard about what Jesus had been doing. So some of them were ordinary people and some of them were the teachers of the law. So you can imagine the teachers of the law down here. They're sitting down because they've got a privileged position. And, but other people are crowded around. So they're sitting down and then suddenly, tap, 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 chip, 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 and the dust starts to fall on, on everybody and maybe a few twigs and things because the roof's made of mud and, and bits, of, bits of wood. And these guys who want to look after their mate, you see their heads poking through, the, poking through the hole in the roof. And everyone's thinking, oh, what's going on here? And the guy gets lowered down through the roof. So was that Jesus' plan? We don't know, probably not. But he knew that something was on. And what does he say? Your sins are forgiven. So the people who gathered would have been a bit bewildered, at least at first. So the ordinary people were suffering under the Romans, the, the crushing authority of the Romans. They were also constricted by the, by the religious laws that had been imposed by the religious authorities that were just deadening. They deadened the life out of, out of the scripture that, that they had possession of. So their hope was for a revolutionary leader, somebody who would get rid of the Romans and who would make it possible for them to worship God without all of the, the constrictions that the, that the religious leaders had imposed on them. So how does Jesus respond to his audience and to the paralysed bloke and his mates? In verse 5 it says, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralysed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now all of those people there knew that only God could forgive sins. So what was Jesus saying to his audience? I'm God. So very early in his ministry, he sets out who he is and what he stands for. So Jesus declaring that he's God, that would have stirred things up. I mean, you can imagine if I walked in today to this audience and said to, to you that I'm God, you'd know that I was crazy and you'd just want to take me away to, to a hospital. But they knew a little bit about Jesus already. Was he really God? They would have, they would have wanted to, uh, to, to think about that question rather than write him off as a, as a lunatic. Because his revolutionary message was that God had come amongst them to restore their relationship with God. Now, he could have said to the bloke 
at, on the stretcher as he came down, because clearly he wanted to be healed. He might have said to him, well, really, your hope is too small. You just want to be healed and walk again. That's really simple. But I can forgive your sins. I can restore your relationship with God. So Jesus had his priorities in order. Firstly, he restores the guy's relationship with God. Your sins are forgiven. But Jesus is also practical. Our Christian faith is practical. It's not just pie in the sky. It's not just wishful thinking. It is also a situation where Jesus was looking after this guy's needs. Now look, I think the reality is that primarily the miracles that Jesus did are signs of who he was. They point to the fact that the kingdom of heaven is present on earth in the person of Jesus. But they're also practical. They also look after the needs of people. But he didn't spend all of his time going around Palestine healing people, otherwise he would have never had a chance to do anything else. So there are obviously some people who missed out on a miracle. But that didn't mean that Jesus didn't love them. So all, I think the paralysed man is a bit like us. Our hopes are often too small or they're, they're feeble or they're even missing altogether. Jesus brings us hope that we never quite dream of, we never quite think of. The people who were there got their revolutionary leader. But it wasn't the revolution that they were hoping for. It was a whole different sort of, of revolution. It was a revolution that gave them something not just for the world now, but for all, et all of eternity. It was a revolution that said you can have direct access to God. You don't have to do all of the rituals at the, at the temple or anything like that. You can have direct access to the Lord God. So Jesus provided them with hope in this world. The paralysed man could have a normal life. But also hope for all of, all of eternity. So no wonder the people said, we've never seen anything like this. They might have also thought to themselves, we've never heard anything like this at all before. So what does that mean for us? Is it a, just a nice story of what happened a couple of thousand years ago? Well, it seems to me that despite the economic prosperity that we experience, Australia has recently been said to be the richest country in the whole world, Despite the blessings of the modern world for communication, entertainment, or transport, travel, all sorts of things, nevertheless in the developed world it seems that for many people there's more stress, more loneliness, more disconnection, more anger. And I think that that flows from a lack of hope or a lack of the right sort of hope. People hope for something and then when they get there they find, well, maybe it's not quite as, as wonderful as they thought it, thought it might be. So what, why do we lose hope? The people that Jesus was mixing with had lost hope. They had hoped for a Messiah for hundreds of years and no Messiah had appeared. 
And then when he does appear, they don't really recognise him and they end up crucifying him. So the earthly liberator that they were hoping for was never going to turn up because that's not really what the Bible said the Messiah was all about. So I think there's a few things about our hopes that are misplaced. Um, We seek hope in the wrong places. There are people who make all sorts of false promises. I mean, look at Vladimir Putin. He's got a whole nation who's hoping in him. But it's a false hope. Old glory is never going to be revived and it wasn't all that great in the first place. Donald Trump created a whole lot of hope for people. But it was false hope. It wasn't based on truth. It wasn't based on reality. Sometimes we expect our life partners to be our saviour or the, you know, something that will give us... We place hopes in our life partner. And I'm really lucky because I've got a life partner. I've got a wife who is wonderful. But she's not perfect. So if I placed all of my hopes in her, that would be a silly thing and would also be a burden, a burden on her. And if we place all of our hopes in someone like that, we get disappointed. Sometimes we'll place hopes in a religious leader, someone who sounds authoritative. And it's good to listen to our religious leaders, but we've got to do it carefully and thoughtfully and prayerfully. Because too many people find that someone who's a convincing leader ends up having a few flaws, ends up being disappointing because they don't answer all of the hopes. We expect more of a person than they can possibly deliver. And by the way, leaders of the church in the marketplace don't expect too much of us. Um, Sometimes our hope is paralysed. I went shopping. I got these, these jeans just recently, not a bad price, um, up at Westfield here. And there were so many shops I could have gone to. Now, fortunately, I had Louise with me and she said, don't go in there. Because it wasn't my style, quite frankly. I'm 68. Most of the stuff wouldn't have fitted me. I would have had to been walking around like this because it would have been too skinny and, and too tight. But if I go shopping up there, I get paralysed by all of the choices. And we do that whether it's a pair of jeans or a pot of jam or a motor car. How many brands of motor cars are there? It's it's more than just Ford and Holden, isn't it? Which was what the brands were in my day, pretty much. And there's some research that says that if we are presented with a lot of alternatives our imaginations work to combine the best of all of the alternatives. And then we get disappointed because there's no single thing or person or political philosophy that adds up to what happens in our imagination. So we lose hope because nothing comes up with what we think should be available to us. Sometimes our hopes, we limit our hopes. We place hope in the things that we can control. So we can control 
what we read about Megan and Harry. We can control what we read about the Kardashians. So we get interested in them because we can't control what we feel about what's happening in drought-stricken Africa. We can't control the worry that we have about what's happening in Ukraine and what might develop there. So we shut off from the big pictures, from the really important things in life, and just deal with what we control. Others of us place hope in our own efforts. We think if I work hard enough, I'm going to have a good career, I'm going to be materially successful, if I put enough in energy into it, I'm going to have a great family. And then we get disappointed because, again, it doesn't live up to our hopes. We achieve that promotion, we get to that position, we've got a nice house, and there's still something missing. One of the things in our modern world is that we're commissioned for immediate gratification. We get an instant response to stuff. We want to communicate with somebody, so we send them a text message. I was in communication with my son and daughter-in-law on the other side of the world instantly during the past couple of weeks. Didn't have to wait for that flimsy blue paper letter that we used to have to rely on, the, the airmail letter. So we're used to things happening instantly. We can order stuff and it turns up instantly. We don't have to exercise patience. But lots of other parts of reality, the worthwhile parts, aren't instant. Relationships take time. Learning stuff that's worthwhile takes time. Doesn't matter what you're studying, whether you're studying like the people in our congregation who are going at, at PhDs or, or who've already got them, or whether, you, whether it's Yuka who's studying at preschool, or whether it's me trying to work out how to fit things together that I'm not really very good at. It takes time and it takes patience. And we've been conditioned to think that everything should happen fairly instantly. So we treat hope as a commodity. We think, oh, we can hope for this and it'll happen. And then when it doesn't happen straight away, we get disappointed. The other thing is we have often faint hopes. So when we were hunter-gatherers, our brains were wired for threats. So we focus more on what the threats are in our life rather than what the good news is in our life. So we don't hope enough for the blessings that can come from God. We're more concerned about the threats. So we focus on the killing that happens somewhere or we focus on the terrible car accident that's happened, or we focus on the footballer who's bashed his wife, or things like that, or somebody who's a wealthy person who's fallen from grace, or a movie star who's been found in a difficult situation. We're more interested in that 
than looking at some of the good things. So we feel a bit hopeless because we don't know how to filter the bad news and spend more time on the stuff that is good news. So what's the answer there? What is hope? The Bible tells us really that there are two sorts of hope. So hope's more than just a vague wish. Hope's not something that we construct. Firstly, it's that confidence that we can trust in God in our lives and we can depend on God to care for us no matter what. Doesn't mean we're going to have an easy life. Doesn't mean we're going to be free of sickness. Doesn't mean we're going to be free of starvation. Doesn't mean we're going to be free of, of war. But it does mean that God loves us and is always with us. But it also means that the horizon of Christian hope extends beyond our lives and into eternity. Jesus didn't die and raise from the, from the dead just in order to keep us happy in this life. He also did it so that we could have the hope that there would be an eternal relationship with God. So what enables us to be hopeful? So remember, hope's not just optimism. Remember Raymond Joso, who preached last week, I think one of the elements of, of his message was the Mary path. Remember there was Mary, Martha, Jesus, we heard about last week. And Mary was waiting to hear from Jesus. Martha was scurrying around. Mary was waiting to hear. Sometimes in order to be hopeful, we need to be able to wait for the good news. Sometimes, I think as Raymond also told us, we need to do things with the right attitude. Martha was doing a good thing. She was making the food, she was tidying up, she was being hospitable, but she was doing it from the for the wrong reason. And if we do thing, good things, perhaps, for the wrong reason, then we're going to get stuck and our hope will be misplaced. So we don't earn hope or build hope. Hope is there for us. We have to choose whether we accept that hope, whether we join up with that hope. So that's the whole part of the Christian, of the Christian message. It's not because we earn it. It's not a transactional thing. We can't buy it. We can't build it. We can't put it together. We've got to grasp it. We've got to commit to it. Now, I've got a video here of it, which is the story of a person who, after a really difficult situation, chose hope. Settle back. In December 2012, Sandy Hook Elementary School became the scene of the second deadliest mass shooting in American history. Six adults and 20 children were killed. Caitlin Roig de Bellis was the teacher who famously hid her class in a tiny bathroom and they managed to survive the carnage. She's written a book about the experience, Choosing Hope, where she outlines her choice to bless others as a way of processing the traumatic events. Caitlin, thank you so much for coming in to speak with us. Thank you for having me. 
Um, it seems quite often that we hear about these terrible gun shootings in the States, and you were involved in a particularly tragic one. Can you tell us briefly what happened and how you were involved? Yeah, well, the shooting at our school, you know, the tragedy of epic proportions. I mean, it wasn't a tragedy in the United States. It was a worldwide tragedy. Um, it was on December 14th, 2012. It was a Friday. It was 9.30 in the morning. It was, you know, two weeks shy of Christmas. This was a time where my students were so excited about the prospect of celebrating their own prospective holidays. Um, it was about 9.30 when very loud, rapid-fire shooting began. My classroom was the first in the school, so it was all around us. Uh, there wasn't a minute of pause or hesitation about what I was hearing. It was very clear that what I was hearing was a weapon, uh, which I knew to be a gun, and um, I knew that that was coming for us. So our only option, you know, there was nowhere to run. We couldn't fit out our windows. It was to hide. You all hid and you packed in your students into a tiny bathroom. It was about three by four feet across with a toilet in the center, truly for a six or seven-year-old. Um, but, you know, I had made this decision when I initially heard that evil, horrible sound, that we were going to attempt to survive it. And that was our only chance. So, so you pack all these kids in mm -hmm. as much as possible, yes. and then what, you just keep them quiet, hopefully, and that, that, until help comes? Yeah, well, kids are very smart, and kids are extremely intuitive. They're very aware, um, maybe not on the same wavelength as an adult would be. I knew it was a weapon, I knew it was a gun. They probably didn't know that, but they knew that what they were hearing was evil and that it sounded so very scary. And so they understood that when I said we need to be absolutely quiet, that silence meant that that wasn't coming for us. And so as we stood there huddled like sardines, squished in that extremely tiny space, uh, for the most part they were very silent and they were very brave. We just uh, remained as calm as possible. And it was a very tragic outcome. I mean, something like 20 children killed. These are kids who my students played with every day at recess. They ate lunch with them. I mean, we had an adjoining door to Vicki Soto's classroom. Uh, we came in and out of it on many occasions, my students and hers. These were kids who my students knew and loved. What was it like for you, if you can speak from your experience? That, on that, that exact trauma? actual day or moving forward? Moving forward. Moving forward, yeah. I, you know, I think there were two things that were um, so evident to me uh, in, in, in trying to move forward. The first was that my complete sense of security and control were gone. Uh, I was left very much a shell of myself in the weeks following. I was terrified of everything. Um, and so it was infuriating that I felt such a lack of safety. And it was also really grappling with trying to answer these questions. And the questions I was so desperately trying to answer were why. And it was a combination of feel being so frustrated with feeling afraid and not being able to answer the whys that led me to this point where I realized that something needed to change because that was not a way to live. And then instead I needed to focus my attention and my energy on questions that I could answer. How do I make sure this day does not define my students or myself? And how do we get our control back? Because our control was taken from us on that day. And those two questions, truly, they became my guiding light. They led me in absolutely everything that I did. At first it was just getting out of bed in the morning and taking a shower. Um, and, they, and they led me down this path of being able to move forward. Tell us about that healing process. How does it happen? I mean, you mentioned these two mm -hmm. questions that became sure. your guiding light. Yeah. And also tell us about the Classes for Classes initiative that you've started as well. 
I can't ever move on from that day. And I'm sure that's very similar to many people who have endured a tragedy or a really hard time. I'm not ever going to move on from that. It is wholly a part of me. Um, and that's not a complaint. That is my life circumstance. But absolutely every day I will move forward. And the way that I can move forward is in things like Classes for Classes, the nonprofit that I founded, which is solely based on the intent that if we actively engage young children, K through eighth grade, in being compassionate and kind and empathetic by actually doing, not just by talking about these themes, but having real tangible experience with giving back and connecting to one another and understanding that their lives don't stand alone, um, that there isn't room for hate. And that gives me enormous purpose and it drives me in moving forward because I believe that we can make a difference and we can make an impact on the way that kids learn to care about each other because at the end of the day that's what it's all about. You can be book smart and pass all the academic tests but if you don't know how to empathize with the needs socially of your peers, all is lost. And so that's been a huge part of my healing. The other huge part of my healing has been connecting my pain with other people's. Pain is universal. Just because I was narrowly survived um, a worldwide tragedy um, doesn't mean that that's any less or any more than someone else's personal pain of losing a son to suicide or being diagnosed with terminal cancer or losing their husband. Those are all traumatic and painful events. And being able to share my own pain and being honest about it has been incredibly healing for myself um, to know that I can affect someone else's life and to know that they can affect mine in hearing their story and knowing that we all go through it, it's universal. No one is alone in pain. I can imagine that recovering from an experience like this is a very lonely time because mm. you know, who else are you gonna speak to sure. about it? Were faith or prayer, were, were they a comfort yeah. to you in this time? Well, faith has always been um, extremely important in my life. I have always been a very spiritual person. I've always been someone who anytime I have a worry or a fear or an anxiety, I pray. I pray about it. I, I, so to speak, put it in God's hands. And um, so absolutely in, in attempting to move forward from my darkest hour, uh, I certainly put a ton of my, um, my worry and my fear in God, for sure. And I still do. And I think that that's um, been huge in my healing, knowing that I'm not alone in it. So how do we remain hopeful in tough circumstances? Um, Caitlin said, how do we make sure that bad things don't define us? I can see people in this congregation who have endured bad things. But that doesn't define them because they have been dependent on God and they have grasped hold of the hope that God offers. I can see people in this congregation who have had bad things happen to them and that doesn't control their lives. It doesn't forever stunt the way that they live. Because they haven't let it rule their lives, because they've grasped hold of the hope that can only come from God. In Romans 5, there's a and we'll be studying this next uh, Thursday, by the way, just a brief ad for the online Bible study or the Zoom Bible study. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. 
and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment. For we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. So the Holy Spirit gives us the power of hope, the power to hope. The Holy Spirit also gives us the power to be hope because it's not just about us, is it? If it was all just about us, if we were a bunch of consumers come here to get a nice spiritual message, we'd be a pretty sad bunch of people. We are also the vessels of hope, the vehicles of hope. If you hope for more kindness in the world, what's the first thing you should do? Be kind. If you hope for more justice in the world, don't just cross your fingers. Do something about it. Be more just. Seek justice, not just for yourself but for others. If you hope for more community, more mutual understanding and less divisiveness, then do something about it. Change, the mi change your mind. Change your relationships. Change the way that you live. And you can do that by calling on the power of God to help you do it. So, and we do it because of our relationship, because we trust God to enable us. With the strength that comes from our relationship with God, we don't do it so we can earn God's favour, so we can earn a relationship with God. We can achieve hope, we can find hope, because God's already made it available. We can live in hope because of what Jesus has already done in the world. We can be hope because God's spirit is available to us and lives within us and enables us to do things that otherwise we couldn't do. So I'd encourage you to leave this place as hopeful people. I'd encourage you to go out into the world this week as hopeful people. And when something comes up on the TV or somebody says something or something goes astray, grab hold of that hope that's available. And sometimes you might, you can't do it by yourself. I mean, sometimes you need to grab hold of one of a brother or a sister and say, look, I'm struggling a bit. Can you help me with this? And hopefully as brothers and sisters, we should be, yes, of course. I'll do what I can. Don't put all your hopes in me, but I'll do what I can. If you're sitting here today and thinking, oh, I've never really come across that hope, don't walk away with a question or a, or a regret or a, a feeling of, missing out on something. There will be people here that will be happy to talk to you. There'll be 
you can come down here and pray, or you might just want to look, grab somebody who looks like they might be a leader around the place and say, look, I'd like to know a little bit more about this hope. So don't walk away. Don't walk away wondering. Amen. So we are going to continue our worship, if I can find my place, by prayer. And what I'm going to ask you to do today is, Tina's just about to roll a video. And it's about, well, when I saw it, I thought this is about hope. This is about hope that the Uniting Church has given and other churches have given to people who need hope. So I'd ask you to use it as a, as a prayer so that you can pray for hope in the situations that we see on the screen and then I'll wind our prayer up after, after the video's finished. in Africa, across Asia, and throughout the Pacific. Today, the global church is thriving in the hands of committed, creative, and capable local people. Dorothy, I help men, women, and children to understand gender equality using the Bible to call everyone to an abundant life. I am Reverend Nyanaraja from the Medhiri Church of Sri Lanka. God has called me to serve the community of disabled people in Sri Lanka. Hi, my name is Albino da Costa. Jesus called us to be a light of the world. That means that serving people, not just through preaching, but in practical ways. I'm Junior. I hope communities to earn a living and to survive shocks of drought, disease and poverty. When we serve people, we are serving Jesus. I'm Prakash. I'm working as project coordinator with the Diocese of Women Research Church of North India. We believe that only education can liberate them from their struggles and transform their lives. These are your brothers and sisters, working to bring the good news to life for others. But they didn't do this alone. We are part of these stories too. Their faith, courage and resourcefulness needed the gifts of our money to unleash this impact. are bearers of good news. We give, we pray, and we commit to a world made new. Step deeper 
into the movement of God's Spirit in the world. This is the good news. And we are the good news people.